0: Welcome to The Lotus in the Fire, I'm Joseph Bobro. Today my guest is Donald Rothberg, a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Center. Donald teaches retreats on concentration and insight meditation, loving-kindness practice, transforming the judgmental mind, working skillfully with conflict, and mindful communication. He has practiced insight meditation since 1976 and has also received training in Tibetan Dzogchen, body-based therapy, and trauma work. Donald has guided training programs in socially engaged spirituality, and he is the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. Welcome, Donald Rothberg, to The Lotus in the Fire.
1: Thanks, Joe. It's uh, good to be with you and good to be part of this discussion.
0: How have you been holding up during the upheavals and the revolts and the pandemic? Uh, what's been the most challenging element of it for you? And, and maybe say a little bit about how you keep hope and inspiration going?
1: Yeah, that's a lot there. Um, Yeah, I've had an interesting, very interesting experience uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I was uh, teaching quite a bit through January and February and I had plans to be uh, on retreat for the month of March. I typically take Uh, a month or so in February or March uh, for a sustained uh, retreat, usually at Spirit Rock. And so I went to Spirit Rock at the end of February and knowing, of course, that things were unstable. And midway through March, in the middle of our retreat, uh, Spirit Rock shut down. And I decided to continue for the second of my uh the last two weeks of my four week retreat and do that at home but I combined that with uh hearing the news, reading the news, uh going shopping and some contact with friends but still doing about 9 hours a day or so of formal practice. And I was doing that along with a friend and we would check in every two days. And uh, at the end of March, uh, we decided to continue. I was having some further responsibilities come in uh, of teaching and also of uh, mentoring people. You know, I, I, those are probably my two main activities generally. Uh, and, but I wanted to continue the, this kind of at-home retreat. And essentially, it's been continued uh since the end of march so essentially i'm on my fifth week fifth, i'm sorry fifth month of an at-home retreat that i've been combining with activities so now i'm probably more on the order of doing four or five hours of formal practice and trying to bring the spirit of practice into my teaching my work with people where some of my teaching is teaching retreats so uh, not so not so hard uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, I've been teaching on various themes, but also I've been very moved by the what we could call the uprising after the killing of George Floyd at the end of May, and um, partly with my own personal background in engaged practice, socially engaged practice, I felt a certain kind of anguish. The retreat had felt very nourishing and I had felt uh, very, uh, what, uh, content being on retreat, having contact with uh, uh, some family and friends uh, mentoring and so forth but I sort of felt a sort amount of anguish and a sort of a how do I respond and how do we all respond in these very difficult conditions uh, where we're sheltering in place for the most part and and so that that was one of the hardest elements actually how do how to respond how to be part of this movement which which i believe is, the sort of most promising development of transforming sort of entrenched racism that's appeared in the last 50 years. And so how do I respond to that? That there was a certain uh, inner anguish for for a while, not for too long, and and so I decided, you know, I was part I've been part of a few demonstrations, but wanted particularly to teach on the topic. So I've been actually teaching at at, uh, three different communities, three sanghas, as we call them in Buddhist practice, on the theme that I've called Buddhist practice and the transformation of racism. And that has felt uh, meaningful as a way to respond to this particular crisis. Of course, that crisis is closely related to you know the three or four other main crises that we could name whether climate crisis or the crisis of economic inequality or democracy being at risk or any further number of crises we could we could name so But generally, I've been relatively content. The practice has been very, very nourishing and doing it at a greater level. I mean, for me, it's always been a kind of uh, question or koan, as we would say in Zen, to uh, ask, uh, how does this practice come alive in this culture, even as a teacher tending, as many of the teachers are, to be overly busy how do we have our practice come alive on a day-to-day basis? You know, if if one's practiced for a while, often the sense of the beautiful qualities of mind and heart and body can be there in retreat. How do we keep them going during the day? And so this home retreat felt like a significant response, you know, certainly more of a response than I've had at any point in my life, I would say. Yeah. And, and, uh, And yet it's just part of the puzzle, because we have these other parts of the puzzle, how to respond to these crises in our world. And I think they're all interconnected. I think, you know, deep practice, finding ways to make practice very alive in daily life, which also doesn't just mean personal practice. It also means in our relationships, in our speaking, in our communities, in our ways of working with conflict. Uh, and bridging that you know having that having depth practice connected with all the elements of more relational practice daily life practice being connected with our sense of participation and larger movements so yeah that's well, been my vision for mm-hmm. some time yeah.
0: right right there's a photo of someone we both know well he was my teacher and uh Wow. A good friend of yours, uh, yeah. Robert Aitken Roshi,
1: yeah.
0: and it's a photo of him uh, holding up a sign that says, the system stinks.
1: That's right. I remember that one.
0: And I I was wondering, um, systems change, individual change, which comes first?
1: I think that's, you're a Zen teacher, so I take that as a Zen koan, and there's actually no answer to it, right? You have to, it's actually uh, a good way to approach it. Uh, there's no um, simple answer to it, but one has to live in the tension of the question. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would I would uh, talk about individual change, individual transformation. I would talk also about... Uh, relational and community transformation, and also collective transformation, and see them as deeply interrelated. Uh, In fact, we can't, I think we can't have any of those without having all of them. Uh, We can't, at least in process, at least in the, uh, in our sense of practice. So for example, individual transformation, well, I can transform in some ways, apparently without paying attention to the collective. I can meditate, I can be more peaceful, I can be more mindful, I can develop certain tools, I can be more content, but if I don't look at certain parts of my own individual experience for example the way i've internalized social conditioning very individual and often blind to many of us right and so we i would so i can i would say we can have partial individual transformation without collective transformation but we can't have full individual transformation without it involving these other areas we see how they're interrelated again you know i see this very clearly in teaching some on on race and racism that we you know we need to uh whatever our background and you know i as and you as uh people who've been racialized as white uh, you know, still with with Jewish backgrounds, we wouldn't have been seen as fully white uh, according to the scholarship until um, around 1960, right? And then then we had joined the white group. but to to look at that conditioning is to look at uh, aspects of our, Lives, uh, aspects of how our minds work as well as our, our ethical lives. Uh, and so we need to do that to really have, to really know ourselves well. And so I think that individually, some of us are called first to individual transformation. Some of us may be called first to more relational transformation, maybe being in an intimate relationship and wanting to look deeply at that and bringing out one's emotional life and vulnerability and relationship. And that may be what uh, brings one alive. Um, Some may come most alive in individual practice. Some may most come alive. This probably was my trajectory. I probably first came alive more with collective action when I was a teenager and a college student, that's what brought me alive to see the world more clearly. And I'm, I'm very reminded in using that language of the uh, great response by the African-American theologian activist and mystic Howard Thurman was once asked, near the end of his life, he died at around 1980, um, a young man, I think in his early 20s asked, what should I do? Howard Thurman at that point had been a longtime activist, had founded one of the first interracial churches in the San Francisco Bay Area. Shirley had plenty of projects he could point to uh, and guide this young person. What should I do? He was asked. He said, Interesting. Listen to this as the response of an activist. Don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so I think that we see where our call is, and it could be, I would say, to go more deeply individually, to go more deeply relationally or in one's community, to go more deeply in response to collective issues. Maybe... Being an activist for climate issues takes one out of one's slumber (laughs) or one's, one's sleepiness. But then I think at some point, the connections have to be made. So I think I want to honor each person's trajectory, but also point to the need to have these different dimensions of our being be integrated so we have a certain integrity to our lives. And that's not easy.
0: Right. You know, one of the things that I've realized over the last couple of years m- more and more clearly is that the three kleshas or the, the poisons, the uh, afflictive um, motivations, if you will, greed, hatred, and delusion, really are the sources of anguish and suffering in our world. It sort of hit hit me that I've been chanting the four great vows uh, every day, just like other Mahayana students around the world. And the second line, greed, hatred, and delusion rise endlessly. I vow to <laughs> end them. Uh, Why is it so difficult, do you think, for we human beings to to see, Donald, to experience the fact that at the deepest level, my benefit and your benefit, my, my self-interest and the interest of our planet um, co-arise, that hmm. they're basically the same? Why is it that, um, do you think, that, People feel so bent out of shape when, when, um, when their own personal—how uh, uh, to say it now—in our—in our day and age, their own personal kind of habits or preferences are interfered with, and it's so difficult to to sacrifice and to see that that in in that relinquishing of certain of the. Personal preferences, and say, just wearing a mask, um, uh, contributes to the benefit of all. And as we all benefit, I benefit. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is, is the hard nut or the hard series of problems that makes it so difficult for us to realize that and live that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I'll take that as an impossible question to answer, and proceed to inquire. I think it is like a koan. I think the Buddha himself once said, don't look for the beginning of ignorance. (laughs) Uh, But I think uh, ignorance is a term we can use. He, he he, He said, don't look for the beginning of ignorance in some kind of causal chain. But he was at the same time able to say that the root issue is ignorance or delusion. And he was able to, I think his uh, response to that question is uh, just as good uh, when he gave it almost 2,600 years ago as now. And it's interesting, I I, I was, uh, you know, in teaching some on... Uh, Buddhist practice and transformation of racism. I was going into more depth on how the Buddha himself uh, was a member of a privileged social group who were generally uh, the descendants of invaders, in this case of India from the West, were lighter skinned and had great amounts of privilege. (laughs) And how Nonetheless, he tried to uh, contest that system and talked about different forms of ignorance. So I've I been interested in the uh, interesting parallels uh, between his life and the lives of many of us. Uh, th- so that being said, I think that um, the traditional response I'll give, and then I'll I'll um, what. Uh, fill it out some by, by, I think, some understandings that are a little more contemporary. So the traditional response is that the core of our ignorance, and this is in the teaching on dependent origination, the core of our ignorance and our not knowing ourselves leads us to think that our happiness is dependent on individually grasping for what we want and pushing away what we don't want. And so there is a sense, part of the ignorance at root is the the sense that we're individual, separate, independent beings. You know, and as we we know, part of the Buddha's teaching was to contest that very notion of an independent, separate self. But once that independent, separate self is there, that independent, separate self tends to think that happiness is found in grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And unless that understanding is broken in some way, it just continues. That's the core account, I think, of the basic moment-to-moment dynamic that leads us to Do what we think we want and have our own really momentary, moment to moment pleasure and avoidance of the unpleasant be the deciding factors in what we do, whether it's to wear a mask or to, uh, you know, uh, have something happen that one wants that might have more social implications. Uh, you know, I was thinking of some of the incidents that have happened in the Bay Area, one where a woman uh, <clears throat> a woman found a man with darker skin plain, painting Black Lives Matter on what turned out to be his own property and uh, called the police on him. right And some anyway, that's that's more complex, but it really leads me to how I would want to fill out, you know so, in traditional practice, we have a notion of, 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 of our underlying ignorance as the cause of all this. And the ignorance can be found in that tendency to, uh, in Buddhist language, grasp and push away, be reactive, is language I like to use. Uh, also, uh, we tend to not see the, the flow of change. We tend to think things are more solid than they are. And lastly, we tend to think that we are separate, independent selves. All of these are, in a sense, delusions, but they're very deeply conditioned. And I think they're further conditioned by two major areas that I think we have more insight into in the West in the 21st century. And I would, so in my own teaching, I like to complement this usual traditional sense of ignorance with, a sense of ignorance that comes more out of personal history and what we might call the psychological conditions on the one hand, and then the social conditioning on the other. And so the psychological conditioning maybe could be related to difficult childhoods, could be related to uh, trauma, could be related to family history and there's a whole level which in the west we call the personal unconscious which can also strongly influence our action and then in a similar way there's all the social conditioning and in the, in the, the US in particular we have you know highly structured uh, individualism which tends again to give the locus of well-being in my own personal consciousness and behavior. And I've noticed in looking at the news uh, from other countries about how they've responded to the pandemic, that in some countries, they've regarded uh, the use of masks as patriotic. And again, this this may, you know, this is still conditioning, but it's a different conditioning. right? And they may, out of nationalistic conditioning, say, it's patriotic to wear a mask. Everyone should do it. I'll do it, right? Very different than us. Here, it's, what's my pleasure in the moment? Should I wear a mask? Ah, a little bit uncomfortable. I can't breathe as well, I think, you know, and I'm, gosh, I'm jogging. I don't want to wear a mask. That would be awful, right? And so it's, uh, you know, we would call this, uh Self-centeredness, individualism, the the core understanding of following one's own pleasure, avoiding what's uncomfortable. So those that's a beginning on your impossible question. Yeah, yeah.
0: What are the major issues uh, that your students and colleagues are are wrestling with? You talked about uh, becoming aware of some kind of anguish, at some point over the last months, for you, yeah, what what is the anguish or the struggles of uh, of your students and perhaps your colleagues? What are you hearing the most?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's, yeah, for for me, I would say I'll back up, I would say for me, part of the anguish was knowing that my own vision, my own being, is deeply connected with integration of this deeper inner work with uh, social response. And so I was aware that uh, I was, you know, at the time, focusing more on the one than the other, which is, as I mentioned, that's appropriate for particular phases. Uh, but here here was a deep urgency. So that's, and I think that deep urgency is felt by many people. You know. I, for example, um, one of my colleagues heard one of my talks on Buddhist practice and transformation of racism and felt compelled or felt uh, an urgency to bring that kind of uh, inquiry into her mostly white uh, community. So I've been invited to teach on that topic for several weeks. To a community uh, to, to a particular community and, and, and so, if I
0: might just interrupt for a sec, yeah. then as you're teaching that community, yeah what, what is what is maybe the most challenging for you in teaching that community about racism, teaching the white community about racism, or the most interesting
1: yeah. <clears throat> Well, um, I've taught several primarily, but not entirely white communities. And I think, um, I don't know if it's the most challenging, but I see it as a fundamental issue is I can, you know, give a talk and so forth, but how, how do we do follow-up? How, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by a study that was done, I think, around 2007, which was a study of nonviolent movements. And they studied nonviolent movements that had occurred under different conditions, including dictatorships. And they found that when, in every situation, 100%, when there was 2.5% or more participation of the population the movement's always won. And so i that's been a very significant figure for me. So I, I sometimes think, how can we get 2.5% of the population involved on an ongoing basis? And that might be in movements, that might be an ongoing work, for example, to look at one's own racial conditioning, whatever group one's in. So I think the hardest thing for me is to how to connect what I'm doing or point people towards a follow-up or give people ideas. I sometimes sometimes say, um, can you get clear on how much you'd like to devote to this issue? Five hours a week, three hours a week. And I've sometimes had one-on-ones with people where we worked that out and ended up with people actually having very strong and clear commitments as to what they'll do. But I think that that is the broader challenge, I think, is how to have this be for the long haul, be ongoing, to name the different dimensions of training, practice, and then, you know, and then, of course, there's the larger issue of a coherent movement. And so, yeah. You
0: know, what do you think... Um keeps white people thinking their stuff doesn't smell and that they're really in touch and black and brown people thinking you just don't get it
1: well i think uh i think when black and brown people may say you don't get it i think that's often very accurate right right uh <clears throat> And so, yeah, so I think for one thing, it's that people haven't, haven't looked carefully at uh, their own conditioning, their own history. You know, as we, you know, as we know from the studies of what's sometimes called privilege, uh, part of the privilege of being white is that one takes whiteness as quote unquote normal and when something's normal, you don't have to look at it. There's nothing to look at. Uh, there's, uh, it's
0: just the way it is.
1: It's the way it is. And so there's sort of a built-in uh, ignorance that comes with it, which can, be, uh, which can go hand-in-hand hand with denial. And I think, I think it's connected with one of the ways that racism has often been framed which is, I think, being corrected at the current time by talking about systemic or institutional or structural racism. One of the ways that uh, people have thought about it is actually have, is um, having discrete, really, really nasty, obviously racist um, actions and comments, kind of on the on the model of maybe the. Uh, the Southern racist from 40s, 50s, 60s, Southern white racist. And so there's been often a model that racism is about individual, personal, obvious bigotry. And of course, what that obscures is many things, you know, and it obscures, uh, it obscures all the more subtle dimensions of racism, but also it very much obscures what, in the last maybe 10 years, has been called implicit bias. Right, the, the you know the sense that uh, there's deep unconscious conditioning, which can even be in direct conflict with one's professed views, that uh, that cause one to uh, um, what prefer white people over non-white people, and of course, the you know the implicit bias research shows that the conditioning is internalized by everyone, not just by white people. That uh, black people uh, internalize that bias as well, you know, not not quite as much, but I think they the research shows that 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 they do, and so we, uh, you know, and I think that's you know the. That implicit bias is shown by research which probably many people know about, such as sending uh, what uh, resumes for job applications to prospective employers and doing tests where one has uh, almost exactly the same background, but the names on the one hand might sound like a, a white person, on the other hand like a black person. And the black people are invited for interviews uh, 50% less, right? So there's pretty good research on that. And so all those sorts of things come under implicit bias. So we don't see those. And we're also, I think there's something, I mean, there's something positive also that's connected. I think we want to be good people. We want to see ourselves as good people, which I think is actually a positive energy, which can be harnessed. And so we, we, uh, we want to see ourselves as good and not think of ourselves as having uh, racist conditioning uh, and having actually having racist thoughts and so forth. So, I mean, it's interesting if you, many people are reading the book these days by uh, Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti Racist. And he, right at the beginning of the book, talks about his own racism and his own having racist thoughts which are very very you know very very interesting so we want to think of ourselves as moral so there's a strong basis for denial and it's not it's simply not part of our education
0: so the challenge <clears throat> or the purview of liberation yeah. which sometimes in classical buddhism or early early zen has to do with individual liberation from yeah. the kind of ignorance that you were talking about earlier uh, in terms of associating one's happiness with material yeah. things with acquiring wonderful material experiences or things and and not having to endure the 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 more uh, unpleasant ones also branches out it sounds like you're saying I'm, I'm pretty sure you're saying yeah. into becoming aware of other dimensions of our ignorance yeah and our conditioning and maybe finding other ways together with other people and maybe through dialogue to become less ignorant and more open and more liberated together I, I don't know I'm
1: yeah no th- no that's right I think that uh, uh, that has to happen in, in, in terms of all of the forms of ignorance that I named, you know, the, the more traditional sense of a kind of a universal ignorance that, uh, the Buddha taught about, but also the psychological, uh, ignorance and the, uh, more social, uh, the ignorance about social conditioning. So, yeah. So for example, um, of course, you know, you as a, as a, psychotherapist, uh, know a number of different forms that have been developed to look at psychological conditioning. I've, I've had a, one of my major forms of work has been to integrate uh, Buddhist practice with a psychological dimension in, in, a, in a particular area that I call transforming the judgmental mind, which includes uh, dealing with being judgmental about social uh, areas and really integrating a number of different meditative tools with uh, other kinds of practices. And very, very importantly, uh, being, in, uh, being with others who are doing the same thing in groups, in communities, in retreats, that the, uh, the common inquiry and the inquiry together plays a very, very large role. And that's also the case in some of the forms that have been, I think, around for a long time for working with social conditioning, uh, they can, you know, for example, uh, looking into, let's say, one's uh, racial conditioning, whether one's white or black or what we call Asian American or Latinx, that uh, this can often occur best in small groups that meet over a a significant period of time, very helpful, that can be over uh, a number of months at least, and where the members of the group or members of uh, share the same um, conditioning basically, have been racialized in the same way, and can go through a process of uh, doing some reading, Uh, Going deeply into one's own personal history, memories, experiences, and being in an environment where um, there is more vulnerability, where there's a certain kind of way that one is safe enough that there's a kind of contract often in these groups not to blame or shame and to be careful about very careful about those energies so that people can be very honest and vulnerable because that's crucial. Without that, not much happens. And, you know, there are nice guidelines for this in uh, Ruth King's book, uh, Mindful of Race, for example, and she is just starting a program. I think it's starting in September uh, in which she's developing what she calls affinity groups, doing a pilot program and she was overwhelmed by responses, and had to, uh, you know, in June, shut down further applications because she she had a limit of a hundred people being involved, and the response was immense. This was to be part of these affinity groups, so they can work with guidelines. Often, uh, don't have a leader. Sometimes they do. I, I've participated in a number of these groups, and at one point I, I led, uh, not really led, but I facilitated a group of white Dharma teachers looking into a race for about three and a half years together, and that was very, very rich. But, mm-hmm. you know, their their programs, I, I've been part of programs at the East Bay Meditation Center, which are typically six months long that combine, you know, I think our program had about 40 people in it. So we had, and we had about five small groups of eight. So we had a large group meeting once a month and a small group meeting of eight, uh, once a month. And that was the chance to tell personal stories. So these kind of forums, and I think there are people developing, you know, new meditations, people like Rhonda McGee, Ruth King, and others are also developing meditative forms to work with this conditioning and the small group. And just telling stories is also very helpful.
0: Yeah. Um, you've been working and offering workshops and writing about how judgmental uh, mind, uh, how, how destructive it can be and how mm-hmm. much of a problem it can be for practitioners yeah. uh, of Buddhism and, and also for, for everybody. Yeah, uh, At the same time, in this day and age in particular, but, but throughout time, as long as there's been injustice, um, it's very important, it seems to me, for us to be able to see clearly and accurately, particularly when there's so much distortion of reality in the social field and so much right. gaslighting going on. So the ability to make distinctions to perceive nuance and out of that discernment ma- make certain evaluations and perhaps you could say judgments Yeah. and then to stand up and speak truth to power or stand up and speak one's own truth, uh, give voice to one's own uh, realization. Uh, how would you see those two things as being similar or different?
1: Really crucial question in, um, in exploring this whole area. Uh, a quick way to respond and I'll give a little bit longer response as well is to say that, uh, the core of the work that I teach and that came out of my own inner process, the core of the work is seeing the judgmental mind, as I call it, uh, as distinct from, well, let me back up, as seeing the judgmental mind as, a, as very commonly, but not always, a mix of some kind of noticing or discernment with reactivity, typically a kind of pushing away or negativity. So, for example, I may have an agreement with a friend to meet at 3 p.m. My friend comes half an hour late. I'm really, really judgmental. Maybe it's happened before. I notice something that's actually pretty important. My friend for whatever reason, didn't keep the agreement. That's important. That's a kind of discernment or noticing. And then I get very reactive and judgmental and let my friend have it, right? Now, what we're looking for is to find a way to separate out the discernment or noticing from the reactivity and use the discernment. Or noticing as the basis for compassionate action. That's kind of the formula that I use, and a lot of the practices that we that we uh, work with have to do with transforming the reactivity. Some of which is connected with long-standing uh, limiting beliefs or deep grooves in the psyche. You know, particularly if you think of self-judgment, and so. Uh, So, in that sense, I actually try to be very careful in using the word judgment, because in English, that's often used to mean a non-reactive discernment. And, uh, you know, like the uh, engineers judge that the bridge was strong enough to withstand this level of wind, right? or all sorts, you know, we use that in, in ordinary English, and certainly reaching conclusions making judgments in that non-reactive sense is a normal part of using the mind. That's important in all sorts of ways. Now, in in the context of social justice, this is actually, I think, quite an important issue. And I've, I've taught workshops on working with the judgmental mind to groups of activists several times, because let's suppose I see injustice, very, very important discernment I can still be deeply reactive about what I notice. And it's actually understandable and even normal to have that reactivity be there initially. Uh, But I think in the long run, in terms of skillful action, just like the example with the agreement with my friend, personally, and this is more where I've been really grounded in traditions of nonviolence, is that it's most skillful to find a way to preserve the insider discernment, let's say, about injustice, but do a certain amount of inner work so that one can actually be skillful in how one responds. And again, yeah, there may I, be different views here, but I, I was thinking of that, let me I'll make say one more thing. I sure. was thinking of that in the context of remembering that uh, for Dr. King, he said, Said something like this: the transformation of anger is at the heart of our movement. So the discernment was obvious, but there's you know tremendous anger that arises, and in his movement he was trying to have social action actually come out of love. It's a very tall order, and in, in Buddhism we would talk more about compassionate action. So that's a very tall order, but I think that that is a vision that I would hold, and many people hold
0: just to follow up on that point yeah. uh, after 911 i noticed in some of my interactions and talks and stuff that <clears throat> people were very intent on not reacting with anger or vengeance they were saying react with love
1: mhm
0: and it was very upsetting to me mhm because I thought what they were doing was eviscerating their own humanity. Mm-hmm. And the love that they were talking about was uh, kind of uh, pale and, um, uh, and, and didn't have power or conviction or force associated with it. Uh, and I, I remember I, I just kept confronting that, you know, w- where I heard it. Because it seemed to me that it was quite natural and quite human to have a whole range of responses to the trauma of nine eleven, yeah, and then to have and 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 mobilize the ability to sort of sort through the responses and uh, sort of say to oneself, well, okay, this isn't going to be very helpful if I come from this kind of place, you know, I want to, uh, yeah. or, or this might be more helpful. And I guess in particular, I, I wanted to ask you about the numbing of emotion and yeah. the evisceration of natural emotion that sometimes comes during this process for people. They, We think, I was going to say they think, we. many of us think that we've got to get rid of our human affect, in, including a kind of righteous anger. So... Righteous anger can be like a loop and be very destructive, but it, it seems to me that there's a indignity that that is aroused within us that I think you know Martin Luther King knew very well, and he yep. transformed some of the vengeful anger into forceful love. So I don't yep. know what you think about this,
1: Donald. That's great. It's a great question, Joe. I think really crucial, particularly for people who are Buddhist practitioners. Uh, because um, there, there, are quite a, there are quite a few, I think, interrelated issues. The first first point that could be said is that this approach that I was giving is not so much an idea as a practice. If one takes the idea that one should come out of love and doesn't connect it with concrete practices to open to what's there, it's very easy for this to become a kind of idealism that is, in a sense, pale. That is, uh, that becomes, uh, becomes a form of uh, spiritual bypassing, suppression, denial, whatever we want to call it. And I think that's actually fairly common. So the key would be to really uh, open up to, to be able to open up to what's there. So I think some, one of the reasons that this happens, I know this is very much the case in many of the Buddhist communities that I've been part of, there's tremendous confusion about the emotion of anger. And uh, I worked a long time ago with a friend uh, doing a dissertation on anger and we, we actually surveyed the views about anger and the, the terminology in all the world religions, all the main psychological theories, forms of psychotherapy and so forth, was pretty fascinating. He, he later published a book about that. His name is Robert Masters. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful book and wonderful approach. And what I have found is that there actually are, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail on it, but there even are major issues about translations that in the West, uh, anger is not simply negative, whereas what's usually translated as anger from Buddhist terminology is, is entirely negative, it's closer to hatred. Often dosa is translated as anger, and this, this is a mistranslation. And so people are very confused, and it's, there's, this is connected, I think, with Buddhist communities, maybe many people being introverts, and uh, conflict avoidant, (laughs) you add all these together, confusion about anger, conflict avoidance, introversion, and you have a a recipe for what you're talking about. And so, um, yeah, and so we need somehow to uh, have a different approach to anger so that we can open up to it, because I think uh, there is an energy in transformed anger that I think I can hear in Dr. King's voice, for example. Absolutely. Right, there's strong energy there. There's no suppression of you. The, you can almost feel the the, the transformed anger there. And it, so, it's put
0: at the service of yeah. social transformation and yeah. and love. It's put at the service of. It seems to me. Yeah.
1: So this is a very tricky issue in multiple ways, and you know, and I think it's important that you know, anger have room to express itself. I mean, some of what we have seen in the last few weeks was just unalloyed and understandable anger. And yet, uh, I think if it's not brought into a transformative process, it obviously can be highly destructive. Right. But, you know, uh, there are a lot of good examples. We have in the West, we have... uh, God getting angry, the Jewish prophets getting angry, Jesus getting angry. Uh, And I think there was, I think it was uh, in the 19th century, I think George Sand said that beneath, when we really go deeply into anger, beneath it is always love and a sense of interconnection. And I have found that personally in my own work with anger. I once had a retreat where I was angry about sixteen hours a day for ten days. And it was quite an experience. <laughs> but I found I when I definitely stayed with the anger and this was in meditative way, that I, you know, it took time, but the beneath the anger often for me there were different things, but there was often sadness was a major Level just but you know a little below that. And then below the sadness was often love. And when I would actually stay with it, that's what I found. And that so what that means is that a lot of the energy that surfaces as anger is actually coming out of love, a deeper love and a, you know, a very strong love, not the kind of imagined love that you were talking about.
0: Well, on that note, I think we'll begin to wind down, Donald. Okay. It's been really a, a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you. Can you tell people uh, where they can find out more about your work and your teaching? And can you also just uh, tell them again uh, the name of your, your new book?
1: Okay, well, uh, let's see. I have a website Uh, Donald Rothberg R-O-T-H-B-E-R-G dot com and uh, I actually just posted two days ago uh, an updated resource list on Buddhist practice race and racism and whiteness so there's an updated resource list there good Uh, and there are other resources on the website there's a schedule Partly because of the pandemic, Uh, I'm doing a little less teaching this summer, uh, but and probably will be doing less traveling. But I have my schedule, certainly of typically of retreats. On your website, yeah, my website. I'm contemplating. uh, Oh, and the the book I've I've done a few books and a fair amount of writing. Um, I have a book called The Engaged Spiritual Life. Uh, which is really a uh, manual, sort of a practice manual for people wanting to connect inner work and the kind of relational work and the collective work together.
0: Yeah, I think you bring it together in that book.
1: I I use that framework in the book. uh, And then I have an earlier book, which is on the work of Ken Wilber, a little more Oriented towards spirituality and psychology, I have a lot of talks. I think when I looked, I have over 600 public talks on the website DharmaSeed, D H uh, A R M uh, A, oh no, D H A R M A S E E D dot org, and you go to teachers and then look for my name. Uh, well,
0: Donald, I I really yeah. appreciate that. It uh, you're you know you've had a a, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, you have a, a, a wonderful way of learning from your own experience and going deeply into psychological, spiritual, and Buddhist paths and bringing forth a, an integrative approach for everybody, which I think mm. in this day and age is, is really precious. So thank you again and um, see you down the path.
1: Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure, and I've learned myself. Thank you.
0: That's our show for today. The Lotus and the Fire is produced by Deep Stream's Zen Institute. The music is by Lou Richmond. Greg Wirth edited the audio. I'm Joseph Bobro. To learn more about Deep Streams, visit our website, deepstreams.org. And subscribe to the show so you can listen to new episodes as soon as they drop. Go to anchor.fm slash joseph-bobrow to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. To provide feedback about the show, contact us at bobro at deepstreams.org. And please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks. Until next time,